this is like the first time I've played this for a long time as well, so it might be crackly as hell. So <laughs> Could grime happen without it? No, I think it, I think it comes hand in hand. As far as the genre starting out, it was 100%, 100% important. But I don't think grime really would exist without vinyl. For a genre that's still relatively young, people's obsession with grime's history might seem disproportionate. It's endlessly told and retold through club nights and radio sets or via the same recycled stories. More recently, it's been the subject of a number of books with publishers keen to capitalise on the genre's mid-decade surge. Today, artists like Skepta and Stormzy are considered household names and their success has been aided in no small part by a boom in the popularity of streaming services. But despite Grime's successes in the digital era, it's a sound with its roots set deep in boxes of vinyl records. Grime grew out of scenes that had vinyl at their heart, from dancehall's dubplate-wielding sound clashes to garages booming 12-inch industry. But it also appealed to an audience that was just finding its digital feet. First taking shape in the early to mid-noughties, the grime scene effectively straddled a defining point in history, growing up alongside the wide-scale adoption of the internet. Its growth would bridge a divide between established physical and new digital music formats, and it holds something of a unique status as a result. While a decade later the scene would be awash with throwaway free downloads and mixtapes, its origins were firmly acetate and vinyl. In fact, for the DJs and producers working within the scene, vinyl just made sense. It was simply the obvious format to adopt. Well, when I first come into the scene, this was, I've been DJing since 1992, so I was playing hardcore and them sounds then. Then jungle, then to garage, then grime. I'm DJ Slim Z, Godfather, Graham, Duplate Master. When I when I f was playing Gary's in 98, 97, them times, 96, like vinyl was, was a big part of it. My first memories of grime on vinyl, um, before I actually um, started making music myself, I was working in a record distribution company. That's Plastician, a DJ and producer from Croydon who played a pivotal role in the spread and development of the early grime sound. So. I saw like the early bits of grime coming through. I was um, selling like the tail end of UK Garage. Um, I was specialising in dark garage, and um, yeah, I just I remember my first sort of really clear memory of a grime record was Pulse X by Musical Mob. I think that was the first one that we saw um, change a lot of the music that was being pressed into vinyl, and also like the the buying habits of the garage crowd um, in terms of vinyl too. 15 years ago, that was often the only way you could get these tunes was on vinyl. I'm Chantelle Fiddy, a freelance music journalist and artist manager. There were no MP3s. People weren't releasing CD singles unless they were signed to a major label. So you either had a choice to tape a radio set, you know, record that onto cassette from Rinse, Deja, whatever you were listening to, or you had to go to the record shop and invest 
you know, seven to eight pound, maybe nine if it was a Wiley White, um, and buy your vinyl. Wiley, the self-proclaimed godfather of grime. He played an instrumental role in the creation of Grime's vinyl market and inspired a new generation of innovative musicians to make their mark. My name's Janaea Cowie. My brother is Richard Cowie, a.k.a. Wiley, a.k.a. the godfather of Grime. And he would actually be nowhere without me. <laughs> I don't think it was Wiley's thing, but what I do think is, is that he knew how to work the programme when it came to vinyl. And the reason why vinyl is a a very, very important thing is that it saved a lot of young black boys' lives, right? It got them off of the street. I mean, because my dad used to always say, like, you know, if you could sell weed and you can sell drugs, make your music and sell records. It's the same thing. It's the same fr frame of mind. Not even just for Wiley, for anyone that was around in those days. It just shows you that, you know, you could be a young boy from a poor family or from a bad estate or whatever, but it just shows that you can change your whole mind frame. You can be someone, you can do something, you can stand for something. And I think that vinyl really helped kick that off. As well as his undeniable musical ingenuity, record trader Jules Green argues that Wiley's entrepreneurial nous was key to the scene's early development. It was a, a model that was set up pretty much by Wiley and it must have been inspiring to everyone else to see, not only to see him doing well, but to see him be able to do it and to be able to get his voice out there. And I think if you are in that scene and you see someone doing that, it says to you, oh, I can do that as well. And it, it creates an effect where it becomes its own thing. Uh, you know, now there's enough records there, someone's gonna open a shop. And then that shop opens and they're doing well. So then there's going to be more records and it creates its own little industry. Um, and then other people see that's doing well and they start taking the records for their shops out of London or wherever. And, and like some sort of sonic virus, the music spreads and spreads. As a result, the record shops that were stocking grime became de facto hubs for the sound and the scene that was slowly growing around it. And they became travel destinations for the keen-eared early fans of the genre too. Here's Plastician again. Well, I was working in a bar in Croydon um, around the same time I'd started buying records and DJing. And I used to get like a two hour break a couple of days a week where I'd do a double shift and I'd pretty much spent the whole time just in Big Apple Records, um, just like t chatting, hanging around really, um, waiting to see if any distributors came in with new stuff that I hadn't heard because I was in there two or three times a week. I, there wasn't a lot that I missed. So later on I used to do go and visit like Rhythm Division for early grime stuff. There was a lot that didn't make it out, out of Rhythm Division, you know, with Rince um, based in East and guys like Genius, Jammer, Dizzy, Wiley, all those guys like pretty much being located in Rhythm Division. Um, we had to go there to get those because they just didn't make it. Some of the record shops in South wouldn't stock like the really like stripped back grime, for example, wasn't selling as well in South as it was in East. So I would make the trip to East just to pick up specific records. So I used to, go, this one in particular was a rare one. I bought this one from Classic Records, which if I remember correctly was a random record shop in Northwest. 
but my go-to was, because I'm from Harrow originally, um, so I'd go to Uptown Records and Black Market Records in Soho, and I'd literally just go on my J's like, as a young girl, save up my little pocket money for a few months, and then buy like six or seven records, and just like rinse the hell out of the A and the B side. That's Shy One, a producer and DJ from Northwest London, whose first encounters with grime were in the sound's early, most obscure stages. Occasionally I'd go on like a pilgrimage to Independence Records in South London. That was all the way in Lewisham, I think, though. Uh, I think I went Big Apple once in Croydon. But for me, it was all about Soho, literally Black Market, Uptown Records. And then opposite Uptown, there was a clothing store called Dark and Cold. And they had like mixtapes and DVDs. The first time I think I would have seen anyone like mixing grime vinyl must have been Rhythm Division. My name is Jay Kush. I run Lit City Tracks. I'm on Rinse FM. Part of Future Brown, DJ for the Newham Generals. So Rhythm Division was uh, the greatest record store that's ever been. Uh, garage and grime. Just everyone used to be in there. Used to roll. I, Slimzy was just like always there. Uh, Spiral used to be in there a bunch. Plastician. I was young too, so like you have to imagine like a like fourteen year old American kid, you know on his own, like, just like staring at these records and, you know, sheepishly asking like to get that one and that one and just sitting there with the headphones and just like the jaw was like. The first time I heard a lot of producers was in there because like I could just ask people like what was good, you know, and they, you know, whether it was like whoever was working in there. I remember JJ used to like, this was a bit later on, he, he used to just recommend so many people. I found a lot of producers that way, like. As Jay Kush suggests, in many ways, these places were more than just shops. Plastician. It was definitely like, definitely the social side of like scene building happened in the record shop, I think. Yeah, I feel like vinyl brought people together. It helped create a community. Jenea Cowie. That's why I feel like it's so important because even if you were warring, you were dubbing each other and whatever, you'd still see everybody in the same place on a Saturday taking their, their records and whatever. I just felt like it, it brought everybody together. And in terms of community, it just drew large amounts of people. Rhythm Division was always packed. There was loads of record shops that we used to deliver to. And each Saturday, we used, they used to ring my dad and say, you know, what time are you getting here? You know, we, we want to be the first to get the record. And like, it's just the anticipation. Everyone was so excited to be a part of something be involved in something, it was powerful. It was powerful. But the nature of these individual record store hubs meant that the sound remained largely confined to the areas in which it was being made and sold on vinyl. The only other place you could hear it was on hyper-local pirate radio stations. Okay, so I'm Thomas. I run a grime label called Coyote Records. Without tape packs, without vinyl being pressed by the thousand back in sort of the early 2000s um the sound would never have spread across london it would have, i feel like it probably would have stayed relatively east and probably without that kind of physical touch paper being lit so to speak it would have really stayed like as a very um geo-specific kind of sound you know it wouldn't have left east london unless unless people started making it outside of east london but the only time the only way you'd hear it is if you were in east london so i suppose that physical that initial like um, kind of clamour to get it out and about, you know, people hustling, trying to get their records in different shops all over London kind of helped it spread. A lot of the white labels of grime stuff that would come out weren't really available to 
you know, they weren't too accessible in Bristol, if that makes sense. Before the internet, anyway, you'd have to travel to get white labels and stuff. If you had a copy, you were known as like certified in, in ends really down here. Boofy is a producer, DJ and record label owner from Bristol. If you look at my collection and stuff, there's, there's some things that I've got gaps of. Then if you, if I look at Neek's collection, he's got white labels for fucking days. Like there's, there's stuff in there that I wasn't old enough to get, but for some reason Neek's got a copy of it. And this may have been because he's, you know, he used to travel for a lot of that kind of stuff before it became too accessible on the internet. Eventually, however, like that sonic virus that Jules Green described earlier, the demand for these early grime records would soon see the sound spread, and not just across the UK, but further afield too. One of the ways that this occurred was through promotion and distribution models lifted straight from the UK garage scene, particularly the use of what was known as record pools. Journalist Chantel Fiddy explains. Um, so, oh God, how can I give a defini definition of a record pool? Okay, so, let me think about this. A record pool would be where, in this instance, Doug Cooper would have organised um, records, promos, white labels, a selection of records to be shipped to a DJ in Canada who would then distribute it to his local network um, and ensure that the right DJ's got the right records just to try and get the sounds popping in different places. And then the hope is obviously that if a tune starts popping somewhere, the record shop locally might want to stock it and then you've got, you know, a distribution model on your hands. But soon enough, these old school tactics would be displaced by the internet as it came to have a bigger impact on the way in which DJs, fans, artists and listeners could connect across the world. Again, grime can be seen in a somewhat unique position, straddling eras and formats. Here's Coyote Records' Thomas Fraser again. I feel like online, like obviously online was also important because it allowed those rips to happen and radio rips were like a massive thing as well, I remember. Radio rips are small segments of pirate radio sets that were recorded live. They would do the rounds via file sharing and peer-to-peer -peer platforms like LimeWire and they occupied a unique place in the scene. They captured moments that didn't exist in any other format and they hold a special appeal as a result. LimeWire arrived um, and other sort of torrent sites and I'd be able to download like radio rips from East. Um, so you'd get like Deja uploads and stuff like that. And they'd only be like a couple of minutes long, but they would then become kind of crystallised in your brain. So like there's, there's one set I always talk about when I'm asked about it from, it's Kano, Getz and Demon, I think, over um, POW, over forward rhythm on Deja. And Kano, they're just freestyling. And what's amazing about it is on the recording, you can hear the MSN messenger um, alert tone going off in the background in between the bars and you hear that bar so they've obviously had MSN on in the studio so you can hear it pinging off on the recording it's about a minute and 30 seconds long but I remember like all the bars and everything so that was one way of like accessing it but I feel like yeah early on that that kind of mix was was very unique I don't think there was many other genres that were that were sort of genres of music where you had people pressing like 2,000 plates and then at the same time there was people downloading LimeWire rips of said music, like, but 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 not having anywhere to perform it or not nobody really understanding what it was. It was a very like strange kind of evolution, I would say. But despite this unique cross-pollination of mediums, vinyl remained the foundation on which the scene was built, even if many operating at the time didn't or perhaps just couldn't appreciate the potential of what they were creating. 
Today, that period of grime exists largely in the form of recorded radio sets and live shows, the odd DVD, and more notably, mass-produced white-label records. Here's DJ Slimsy again. Uh, we just used to, yeah, we just used to press it out like on white label because it was cheaper. But um, white label, just you could, you could get them, they were, like the return quick. You could just press it up and get it done the same weekend. Do you know what I mean? Like, why do you go around to shops selling them for ten pound a units and stuff? Do you know what I mean? Like morgue when that first came out on white label, he was selling them to ten pound. I remember going room division. They, they were selling for fifteen pound. Do you know what I mean? All the little kids are going, oh, one, oh, one, oh, one. Why does it come in here boxes? Do you know what I mean? Like... Janea Cowie played a key role in her brother Wiley's white label operation. You know, we used to go to the test press, we used to listen, see the quality. They used to bring the boxes of records to my mum's house because she used to live in Brick Lane. So we used to get them all there. Like, her whole ceiling used to be full of records in the front room. This is no word of a lie. I remember my brother, like, removing her furniture, throwing some out on the balcony coming home from school and there's just like ceiling high boxes of um, records. And this is where like the money really started coming in. So me and my sister used to label each record, pack them in the boxes. We used to ring the record shops. So it was like a little family business we had going on. You know, We used to get paid like 200 pound a week or something like that. So we used to give the orders to my dad and then my dad used to go well, my dad and I used to go and deliver. We used to just go and deliver. Sometimes, I remember when my brother stole my dad's van once because my dad said he wasn't able to, to deliver until he'd finished work or something. And my brother was like, forget that. Let's get the van, let's get this. So, you know, we're, we're getting in the lift and walking down the stairs with boxes and boxes of records. And, and I think I was around 15, around 15 at that time. So it, it, it basically saved us. It basically saves us because at that time there was just absolutely no worries. And you know, and when you get to the record shops, they've got the money waiting. And I remember some record shops used to say, you know, can you give us more? Then we'll sell them onto the record shops. It was just, it was so fun. It was just so fun to be a part of. Despite being preferred then for being quicker and cheaper to produce, those white label records hold huge value today, both sentimental and financial. Some of the more sought after plates sell for three figure sums on Discogs. Here's the journalist Chantel Fiddy again. I was thinking about the whole, you know, why does the white label hold such weight? And I think there's a few, you know, a few reasons behind it. One is the actual sonic composition in itself. So you have to remember with early grime, it was the rejection of this high-end sound. So nobody was going into these big studios. A lot of it was, you know, DIY home studios. Um, yes, people were mixing records, but not all of them mixed to the degree you will hear now. And when you listen to those old vinyl what you hear is very very different to how you'll hear it on mp3 or how you'll hear it you know um how you hear any new track now it just sounds authentic it sounds of the time record trader jules green says that most of the grime records he sells are white labels too most of it is white labels um which kind of suits the music it's something about it um and it makes it a little bit more challenging tracking them down because you know, it could be anything, you know, you pick up a white label and you hope it might be the one, you know, you're in a shop and you see a white label and you think, oh, that could be that Wiley record I'm missing or that Rough Squad record I'm missing. And you're eagerly looking at the catalogue number and it's not. <laughs> and the flip side of that bit of mystery or intrigue is, of course, that maintaining an accurate archive of these records and that whole period in the sound's history can be difficult. 
a lot of the grime records I've had in have been, you know, the writing on them doesn't really correspond to what it is. The tunes had different names to what's on them. They, some were mispressed, some were misstickered. The catalogue numbers don't quite make sense. They, they don't, you know, they don't go from one to through to ten. No one knows if, for instance, Wiley 28 exists or 27. They're not on Discogs. I've never seen one. Maybe someone knows more than me and can tell me. I don't know. Flick through most grime collections today and you'll find a mix of blank white disco sleeves with hand-styled artist names and track titles, disc labels scrawled on, not always reliably, and sticky notes with printed names and now defunct mobile numbers. I think at the time, again, you'd pick up, I've got loads of, you know, uh, records down there, for example, whites. I might have like a Wiley 004 or a JME 001. And that's how most of them are identified. And you always hope, you know, looking back now, that the handwriting on it was of the, uh, you know, of the producer, but sometimes it was actually the guy in the record shop doing it. But either way, that was, you know, often the main identifier. And I've definitely got white labels down there that I don't know what they are. And I do love that um, element of it. And sometimes the identifying factor on a record is even more unique. Here's DJ and producer Shy One. This one, yeah, is one of my favourite records. It's got, you can't even see it, it's a white label, but I know from that little tear there that this is Wiley Ice Rink. Absolute. Like, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm such a nerd, I've got goosebumps. But Grimes' fast and rough approach to record production hasn't deterred traders and archivists like Jules Green. He sees these records as bearing an important legacy. Yeah, they're iconic records. They're important records for the history of British music. And they should be held in high regard. You know, they, they're as important, in a sense, as Sgt Pepper's or the Rolling Stones. These are the heroes of the people who, who like the music and, and rightly so you know and you see Wiley getting an MBE and you think that's amazing good luck to the man and it's important that what he's done and, and the music that he makes is is recognized as being something that's an important part of what's great in this country and the mantle of maintaining this historical record is often being taken on by a younger generation of DJs and fans while in the midst of serious depression, Slimsy took the bold and, he's since said, regrettable decision to sell his unique collection of records and exclusive dub plates. Much of that collection ended up in the care of the DJ Jay Kush, who we heard from earlier. So I ended up meeting Slimsy through Scratch a DVA about 2013 or so. Slimsy tweeted something about selling his dubs and I, I was speaking to Scratcher and I said to Scratcher to tell Slim not to sell them, that he'd regret it and that it was really important that he kept them. And I guess because I said that, like Slim Z thought that I was like a good person to entrust the records to or something. So, I mean, it, that's what it was, it was just like knowing the importance of these records and making sure that they're around for posterity's sake, you know? Because at some point, like, I'd hope to make sure these are all restored and in like the British Museum or some, or something, you know, because they're, they're artifacts that are hugely important. And, and these are still Slimsy's records. Like I might have them here, but I don't feel like they're mine. I just feel like I'm looking after the, them for him. But what about new grime records? Is there still a role for vinyl to play in the grime scene today? A host of young label makers certainly think so. 
New vinyl first labels like Butters, Coyote Records and Sector 7 cropped up around the early 2010s, despite it being considered a relatively flat, fruitless period in the sound's history. Bristolian DJ and producer Boofy. Along with another producer, Lemsley Dale, he runs a record label called Sector 7. Was like, there was a lot of people saying, um, you know, yeah, this ain't gonna work. Even Lems was saying that to me, bruv. Like, it was mad, do you know what I mean? Someone that I've made music with, and he was like, oh, bruv, I don't want you to be stuck with like loads of money gone. And I was just like, the worst comes to worst, I lose money, you know, and I'll just go back to the, the you know, the, the blueprint or best best scenario, we've got money made and we've sold records, innit? Okay, so just a bit of context. When we started, there wasn't really anyone putting out vinyl for Graham. This is Elijah, one half of DJ duo Elijah and Skilliam and the co-founder of Butters, arguably one of the most creative imprints to come out of the grime scene. And I was listening to like House and Funky and Dubstep and all those labels that I liked had records. So to be considered serious and as part of that community, putting out records, all the forward kind of people, I wanted to do the same thing. And I was buying, so I was trying to put something back into the ecosystem as well. We had like a designer, we had all the things that could make a record really straightforward. I knew how the business worked to an extent, just from buying things. Like, you know what you want as a consumer. And yeah, I just wanted it to be serious. Like, Grime was like in a phase where it was mixtapes, CDs, free downloads, a lot of uh, throwaway music. And I was like, wow, man, we're serious. We're gonna come through with vinyl and like artwork. Sector 7's Boofy. Yeah, I think that's essentially like the whole kind of thing of why we did that. I mean, that was like a pivotal time in my life, really, because all I've ever wanted up until that point was to feel that I could release music on wax. That's all that's ever really been important to me. You know, as, as, as small as it sounds to anyone else, like that's all I could ever want. So when Bandulu stepped in and put like my first tune out, I was like, right, cool, this is sick. I believe in my own stuff now because someone else has been willing to put it on wax. So. I, when me and Lems made our first thing and it, it clocked up numbers, I was just like, let's not leave this to just kind of fizzle out on SoundCloud or whatever. Let's put this on wax. And it was supposed to be just a white label thing because I didn't know how it was going to sell. And it kind of stumbled into a good release, I suppose. You know, there wasn't any solid plan. I didn't know anything about it. And then, yeah, we kind of put it out. It was only supposed to be a white label. We stamped one side and then that was it. And then within like the next couple of weeks, it was like, oh, this is fucking sick. What's the next one? And we're just like, ah, it's coming. And then we're just like, oh, what the fuck? Like, do you know what I mean? So like people see it as like, sick, this is a collectible. I want to know what the next one is. And then that's kind of what started the label. And it's a bit of a, it was like an accidental kind of rolling thing. And everything after that was just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but it's guesswork. Here's Thomas Fraser again, who runs Coyote Records. At the time, people took it very seriously when you were released on records. I think because vinyl was had become so expensive and such a sort of timely pursuit, it took so long to do everything. I feel like people took you a lot more seriously, especially in the sort of electronic world, if you were releasing on wax, because it, it was an investment. And at the time, I felt like Graham needed that extra care. It needed that, and that's what Butters interjected at the time. They were just saying, like, we need to take care of these. We need to. This is our music. We need to take care of it. We need to d release it properly. We need to look at what other labels are doing, and think about how we can, you know, make our own versions of that. You know, if if Hyperdub can do it, then why can't you know why can't we kind of thing? And that just resonated with me really because ever since literally from the first record, people were like, right, like you're pressing. It, it, it automatically gave you like a a way in, and I understood that. 
obviously like a lot of early grind productions were all were all passed around on on wax whether 10 or 12 like, I knew that was part of the history so for me it just kind of it didn't make sense to do a digital only grind label in 2010 because no one was really buying it digitally whereas you always had a market for vinyl because there would be always be someone that was looking for maybe a certain type of sound or they might discover it because they like one of the remixes you've got on there there was always a market you'd always have people buying and also just in terms of the artists they've, they've got something physical and I've got something physical to look at and it's like a product of your hard work and today, just as in the early days of Grime, the vinyl format is once again helping to grow and maintain a grassroots scene that extends well beyond city boroughs and country borders. Boofy explains how it's enabled him to connect with people from well beyond his city roots in Bristol. It was like the whole thing of being able to help other people by selling a physical product. Like I wouldn't see that much help or make that many connects just by selling a, a digital product. Where, for example, while selling a physical product, I created loads of fucking distribution links. I, I've got a healthy rec, like you know record shop link uh, throughout Europe, pretty much. And still to this day, I self-distribute just because you're selling physical products, you know. And then these shops are just like, "Hey, Louis, anything new this year?" And I'm just like, "Yeah, I got a few things up this year. I'll give you a message like about six weeks before. Um, we'll get price and sorted and whatnot." And then these people, they always help you out. And it's like, look, this shop wants them, but if you want me to sort them out, just send me an extra 20 or 30 records or something. And it's me putting records out and you can kind of see that people are feeding into it because you're helping them, but they're helping you at the same time. And I think with, it's, it sounds really cheesy, but it's, selling wax has created some really good friendships and relationships with, um, you know, with shops and people that are just interested in music. Coyote Records' Thomas Fraser has made friends all over the world. I send records all over the world. I send, there's a guy in Gibraltar buys every fucking record. There's Nick Muller in Dresden, shout out Nick, buys every record. There's a guy called Matteo from Venice, buys every record. You know, and these are things that I would never know if I didn't press vinyl because you, you could just go on iTunes or whatever, distribute and, you know, and, and download a track and I would have no concept of where that came from. But now I now know that I have fans in Russia, that I have fans in Germany, there's a guy in Gibraltar that buys my records, there's a guy in Venice. There's, I know that these people exist and where they exist. And I know that there's a market beyond, you know, my computer screen. Um, and it's a real relationship. You know, if I, I'm sure if I went to Gibraltar and said, yo, like, if I, I'm, I'm Thomas, you buy all the records, like, I could probably have a beer over it, you know? Or, and I feel like it, it opens doors in a way that digital formats never will. For Thomas, physical formats like vinyl are the glue that can hold an increasingly fragmented digital scene together. I feel like it's vital that it continues, definitely, because, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a link, you know, and I think if we erase those links, you forget what the whole purpose of grime music is and what it was, like anything, isn't it? You know, if you forget your history, I mean, you don't know where you're going, do you? So much about Grime's story remains unique. It began with a physical format and flourished in a totally different digital era. And from the communities that formed around these records to the livelihoods that grew out of them, it's unlikely we'll see a sound or scene develop in this way again. <laughs>